0: In a time when writers had unprecedented access to players, when we could share a meal or hear Larry Bird's trash talking up close and personal, Dan Shaughnessy managed to be in the middle of it. From 1982 until 1986, he covered the Boston Celtics of the Big Three, Bird, Parrish, McHale, along with other assorted greats like Ainge and Walton and Dennis Johnson. In Dan's latest book, Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics, he captured the sound and fury of those years. And like the Bill Walton quote that gave the book its name, dear reader, you'll wish it lasted forever. Larry Bird gave Dan Shaughnessy the nickname Scoop, which was a couple of years before he beat Dan in a free throw shooting contest where Bird had his entire hand wrapped up like a mummy. Dan tried to expense the $160 he lost. The Boston Globe said no. It's stories like these that you'll read in Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. It's been called the easiest Christmas gift, and it's a blast. Hello, Dan.
1: Hello, Leslie.
0: (laughs) We should do this more often. Yeah, really. Uh, I have to start at the beginning with you. Uh, When you were growing up in central Massachusetts, you had all those Sports illustrated covers on your wall, which I believe you've insanely preserved. Oh, Dan, no, no. Dan, you're almost 70.
1: I know. Oh well, dear. it's you know, it's the amazing thing is it's scotch tape, like the adhesives holds for 50 years. Who knew?
0: Well, didn't your dad work for a scotch tape company?
1: He worked for the the paper roll that it's that those pictures are taped to. He would supply the paper roll, this giant brown paper that that they wrap meat in when you go to the butcher, it's that kind of paper. But, uh, the Scotch tape from the sixties is still hanging in there.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure you have a Bill Russell up there. What were the Celtics to you as a kid?
1: I do. Bill Russell's right behind me with the last one, in 1969 and a great sports illustrated cover. I mean, this was really a privilege to grow up in, in Massachusetts at this time to have that team because, uh, it was great modeling. It was great for our coaches, great for us as players to, to learn under a team where it was team above self and they never had the scoring leader. And they were progressive with the first black head coach, first all black starting five. They won every year, they were clutch. Um, and it, it didn't matter who started, it was who finished. A lot of the things that Red invented, the sixth man, all that stuff. So it was really special. And you know, you and I are pretty close to the same age, but I can tell you as As a fan, I was in high school before I realized they don't win every year. I mean, (laughs) it was like every year of my of of my fanhood until I was like a sophomore in high school, they won the championship in the spring. It was like the Pasithea blooming. It just happened every April.
0: Well, you wrote in your book was so great how uh, when uh, the Celtics lost to Philadelphia, that's Mm. where the chance started. Beat L.A., which was so original and so Bostonian.
1: Right. I mean, there's, there's certain moments when you grow up here where it's sort of the, the fan thing is, is I think, unique. I mean, everybody thinks they're unique and think they're special. But we've had some things um, over the years and actually compiling a short list of them. And that's one of them when the the, the Boston fans knew they were going to lose. So it's like, let's just defend the conference and and go beat LA.
0: I don't know if this is you or our friend Bob Rodefield, but one of you, I remember, told me that pretty much the only book you read as a kid was um, Basketball is My Life by Bob Cousy, as told to Al Hirschberg.
1: <laughs> That's correct. And that book is on my shelf right behind me here. Uh, I, I took it out of the library. It's, it was fun to go back to the, the middle school library and the town library and, and see your name because you'd have to sign things out. And you could go back decades later and then you'd see your, your seventh grade self signing out these books. And yes, so that was any, there weren't that many sports books back then. So you had to go get it and it was one of the local guys. Man, oh, man, we'd, we'd get through that really quickly.
0: Yeah, it still sells for pretty good money. I know you're great friends with Bob Cousy and you'll have to tell him on eBay. It's, it's still being sold. I think I saw him. He will know, one. 93
1: years old, sharpest 93-year-old guy I've ever known. The, he's the greatest. Love him.
0: Yeah, he is. He is really great. Uh, he, as you know, speaking of Bob Cousy, there are so many Celtic books. Uh, why this book? Why now?
1: No, that's a very really good question. And again, we're not, I'm not going back in time here um, and, and telling you who won the, who scored the most points play by play. We're not interested in that. Everybody knows who won all that stuff. I understand that. This was a kind of a love letter to, to the, the reporter uh, team relationships that, that were forged in, in that period. And you live some of it, but stuff that'll never be replicated. And, you know, today you're not allowed to really tell, you're not, You don't know enough to tell the readers, the fans, what these guys are like and what's going on. And that's the big moat that has separated fans and media from the players. I go back far enough to a time when I was with the Boston Globe. And when you covered a team, you were immersed in that team. You were, you know, flying commercial, staying in the hotels, on the buses, going to practice. Nothing was closed. Locker room, the practices. You were there. I mean, outside of the fame and the money, it was like being on the team. So we really got to tell the readers and fans what they were like. And and again, those courtside seats that people pay thousands for now, they were were available. They were given to the lowly media then because the NBA had figured out they could monetize that sort of seating and that sort of space. So when the COVID bubble hit and we didn't have any games, we were all kind of setting our watch by the last dance. And then I kept seeing my 30-year-old self with the giant glasses and hair sitting right next (laughs) to the bench. And thinking, yeah, that was a pretty sweet time. And then when, when they started playing again, I mean, they were playing in the COVID bubble in, in Orlando, and he had to sign a waiver saying you would not approach an athlete or a coach if you saw them away from the facility. Well, that's when we did all of our best work, waiting for bags, being on airplanes, waiting for the next flight to come while we were changing planes in Newark or Chicago or whatever. And again, nobody's fault, not being at the moon here just saying today we we don't know what's going on with the Celtics. Do they like the new coach? Does Brown like smart? Does Tatum like Brown? Nobody knows. You're just guessing. People watch TV and they guess because you can't get close to it. So this was an era when you could. And again, that team was really, the Celtic team was very special. Bird, Parrish, McHale, DJ, they were very secure in their greatness and they were very funny. And there's a lot of back and forth between myself, ourselves, the work, the working media and those guys. And, uh, Again, a, a time that's probably not going to be replicated. It was tremendous.
0: Yeah, well, you have a self-deprecating wit. You were sort of perfect for that team for that time. But, you know, I, I want to talk to you about the 84 NBA Finals, arguably the greatest uh, finals in NBA history. Uh, was that a shake, like, without question?
1: Oh, my God. I mean, there's eight <laughs> Hall of Famers. I was just doing that because I forgot McAdoo's playing for them. There's eight <laughs> Hall of Famers, four in each team. And of course, both coaches. So 10 Hall of Famers. The, the Celtics-Lakers is the is the Ali Frazier of the NBA. There were three within a four-year period, and it absolutely rescued the league. It put them back on the map. And then, of course, Jordan comes in and you spiral to Dream Team and all that and the global entity that it is today. But it's so important, that 80s thing. And it is the best series I ever covered.
0: For people who maybe didn't see it in 84, can you describe it was also a clash of cultures? Like, yes. wh- how are these cities so different?
1: Well, I mean, you had the Boston, L.A. thing. So Showtime against the gritty, doughy faced Bostonians. And, you know, there was a big racial component to it. Even the Lakers, they all talk about this very freely, that in Boston, the Lakers felt they had that the black community wanted the Lakers to win because the Celtics were the white team and the Lakers were the black team. So you had that going on. And, and Maxwell Talks freely about it. Magic talks freely about it around the country. There was some identification to that. There was also a notion, and, and you're all about college basketball, Leslie. You know this better than anybody. But it hadn't occurred to me about the starting lineups in that time. So the Lakers, they were all from blue chip conferences. You know, UCLA, North Carolina, uh, Arizona, Coach Michigan from Kentucky, State, Michigan State. Mm-hmm. They were just blue chippers. And you know, relatively obvious, easy talents to assemble. The Celtics starting five: one came from Centenary, one from Pepperdine, one from Virginia Commonwealth, one from Indiana State, and one from North Carolina Charlotte. Now, those are the conferences that everybody dumps on, second tier, et cetera. And these guys had they they carry that with them. I mean, for Larry Bird, Terre Haute, and Indiana State looking up to Big Ten, he wanted to abuse those Big Ten guys the rest of his life. He'd get up against Phil Hubbard or Magic Johnson or Gregory Kellser and just Payback man, Kent Benson, you know, you big time me when I walked around the campus there. I'm gonna get you now. And they all had it. You know, they had the Ben st- State-of-the-art LA forum. We had the crappy old Boston Garden, and it was a million degrees in Boston. I mean, you were there for that. It was like, you know, 120 degrees. Kareem's got the oxygen mask over his face, kind of a bad optic, and and just unbearable for them. And the Celtics had an in period, they were great, but they were not quite as great as those Lakers, and they beat them anyway because they got in their heads.
0: I remember after that game five, which you were right, it was one hundred and twenty five degrees and I was in the Laker locker room. And of course, James Worthy was so soft spoken. So everybody were pressing against each other, sweat dripping down our face. And the great (laughs) writer, Diane Shaw, turned to me and said, we fought for the right to get in here. Who wants to be in here?
1: (laughs) It was gross. It was totally gross.
0: You know what I also remember? that people I think will be shocked to know is that remember Jack Nicholson flew with us we were all on the same flight and I remember I was fortunate to be in first class for the after game two when uh, Nicholson had done the choke sign right and then he didn't want to look at any of us but d- did you find that Nicholson loved the whole scene the way we loved having him oh, he was
1: he was part of it there's a picture of him in this book where He's he's grandstanding behind us. And the, it shows the press roll with Bob Ryan, Lee Montfil myself and and Larry Bird's wife is sitting right behind uh, Jack in a blue dress. And he was part of it that he's a fan to this day. It was legit. He was already wildly famous then. And of course, in 84, uh, he was the reigning Oscar winner for Terms of Endearment. And that film was shown on that flight as we went after game two we We're on commercial flight. And the film was Terms of Endearment. He was too cheap to whip out the three dollars for the headset. And read his book the entire way. And uh there we were. I was not in first class, but Scott Wedman, who was, came back to apologize for not talking to me the night before. That's in the book. Uh you had some wives' run-ins. Nancy Parrish hated me. I mean, yeah. it was a big, it was a big club, and Chief hated me, and Mrs. Chief hated me. So the night they won the whole thing in Boston, another million-degree night, and um I was bringing my stuff upstairs after the champagne soaked celebration to go right for the last edition of the globe. And I hear these high heels clicking on the old linoleum floor, of the old Boston garden. And I turn around and Mrs. Chief wanted a piece of me and she was not having any of it. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you're all happy. You guys just won way to go. Chief had a good game and I was saved by security. And, and of course they, the players love that. I mean, the next time I talked to Larry Bird, he said I heard Nancy Paris hit you with her purse. You know, yes. they would love that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> everybody, loved, everybody loved your relationship with Larry Bird because he was as funny as you were, and he was up for
1: it. In the late stages of one of those games at the Forum, they were down like 137 to 104. It was over. And Larry had a couple of free throws, and it was very quiet. And, you know, they were just getting, getting used. And in the quiet moment between free throws, a, a Forum fan yelled out, Larry, how do you stay so white?
0: he was i used to say that to chris mullen but he was yeah he really really was
1: i understood that
0: was the yes you too was the um after game three the bird we played like sissies if i understood your book correctly you said the series the tenor of it changed with the uh mikhail rambis clothesline like what was that amazing
1: i just had that on, on my i've got the cassettes of well, the, the old disc of those games. And I was just watching game four yesterday. Magically done by Dick Stockton and Tommy Heinsohn at courtside, by the way. They were they, they were did
0: tremendous. great jobs on all of them. Tommy, a job. little bit of a homer, but... Yeah, a little, little bit. But it was A little bit for the so, national audience.
1: So they lose 137-104. They should have lost all three. They should be down 3-0. It should be coming up to being over. And then game four, uh, they fell back behind by 14 again in the first half. I mean, it looked like they're going to go down 3-1. This thing's over. And um, and at halftime, you know, it was like no more layups. This was a thing. And Danny Ainge, she pulled Mikhail aside. I said, hey, I am I take grief everywhere around the country for being the bad guy here. Everybody hates me. He said, somebody else hit somebody. Somebody else take a hard foul. And um, no more layups. And so they were all saying it. And then in the second half, uh, the Lakers were still ahead significantly. And it was a fast break opportunity. Kurt Rambis was coming down the right sideline and Mikhail just came across the floor and Stuck out one of those Gumby arms and Rambus's foot almost hits the rim. He's upended to that degree. There's a picture of his foot's just below the rim. And, you know, obviously a hard landing. And, yeah, I talked to Mikhail about this for the book. And, you know, everybody knows Kevin said, yeah, I'd be suspended for a year now on that hit. And in that time, it was two free throws and we're going the other way. That was it. There was no flagrant foul, no path to the basket, no no and ones, no no nothing except two free throws. He missed one of them. And Cedric Maxwell had the greatest, you know, because the Celtics won that game in overtime, to square the series. And Max said, he says, we got him now. He says, you know, before that play, they were like little kids running across the street, not even looking just back and forth, just willy nilly. He says, now they stop. They hit the button. They look both ways. They wait for the light to change. And then they proceed. He says, we got in their heads. And he did that same game. You know, Worthy was at the line. Poor James Worthy. He's like 21 years old. He's a rookie. He's from Gastonia, North Carolina, worship Cedric Maxwell as a young guy. And uh, he misses the first of a one-on-one, uh, not a one-on-one, but missed the first of two. And Max walked across the lane, giving the choke sign. And the forum fans were yelling. And Max like, what are you booing me for? He missed the goddamn free throw. And um, it never. It, James Worthy talks about this. He says, you know, I spent, I was a child. I worship Cedric Maxwell. And now I got this asshole walking across the line. I missed a free throw. He's giving me the choke sign. And it just was, it was hard for him. And uh, he said, I'd never been in an ugly environment like that. And uh, and Max said, he said, James Worthy, much better basketball player than me. But in that moment, in that time, I had him and everybody knew it. And he did the rest of the series.
0: They go to game seven. It's been six games, two overtimes. Um, What do you remember of that scene going into game seven?
1: Two rules were changed because of this series. One was the 2-2-1-1-1 format, which went away for like 35 years because of that. Wasn't that um, because
0: Red didn't want to? Fly like no. that, back
1: and forth. And then the, and then the breakaway rule changed because of the Mikhail rambis play. But um, so the last week of the of the series, every day was either a game or a coast-to-coast trip. And they were flying commercial. We went through Chicago once. We went through Newark once. It was not even nonstops. There would be no bus when you'd land. It was a thousand degrees. It was ugly. And a, Stan Grossfeld, there's a great picture in the book of Larry sleeping on the floor of LAX with a converse bag for pillow. And that's that was the travel. We're just getting a few winks before boarding and back and forth. So anyway, everyone's exhausted. Thousand degrees again in the garden. It's game seven. This thing has come to fruition, but you can feel that it's shifted and the Celtics are very confident. ML cars running up and down like a crazy man pounding on the Lakers door saying, get out here, you L.A. fakers. Take your beating like a man. Come out here, Tragic Johnson, you know, just carrying on. And they're out of their minds. Pat Riley, this is the low light of his professional life because they know they should have they should have won it in four. And now here they are in a seventh game in this hellhole, and then they got to try and make something happen. And Celtics beat him by like 11. But Maxwell, before the game, Danny Anch had a stethoscope. He was in the locker room. Yeah, what was around that getting everybody's, getting everybody's heart rates, you know, see if, you, if your heart's jacked up. how you, you know, And Maxwell had like no pulse. Danny says, well, I can tell you're ready. Maxwell <laughs> said, that's when he said, hop on my back, boys. I'll take you on home. And that night, Cedric Maxwell scored 24 points, which was his high for the season. It was the only time in 100 games he was the leading scorer in the Celtics. After predicting he would bring him home with eight Hall of Famers on the floor, he was not one. He was the best player on the floor that night.
0: But tell me, God, yeah, yeah, that's true. Also, one of the best quotes in the history. Oh, my God, he's a machine. (laughs) History of sports. But uh, in that locker room before did you see Danny Ainge with the stethoscope and didn't ML Carr have goggles or something?
1: ML had been some some liquid had been thrown at ML at the forum uh, as he was coming off the floor because he was taunting them left and right. <laughs> he wasn't playing much, but he was a mouthpiece and he was a tough guy. You know, he had been a prison guard before he's in the NBA. He was Larry's bodyguard first years in the league. Nobody wanted to mess with him because he was, he was, he was tough. So he got the stuff thrown across his face and he claimed he had conjunctivitis, but he was just, he was just <laughs> mocking Kareem. He was mocking Kareem with the goggles and Worthy. He was mocking them, which is, <laughs> everybody it's, knew it. Oh and it was, he was just carrying on and he had have these dime store fans to fan the players and they'd come off and <laughs> it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was nutty. It was great. How
0: were you able to build the relationship with Larry Bird. I mean, didn't didn't it not go too well the first time you tried to Well,
1: make... yeah. So, you know, Larry's not trusting of strangers. I understand that. And he's shy and didn't want any part of autographs or having his picture taken. I, I mean, I get that. He didn't talk a senior at Indiana State and just wanted to play. And it was very overwhelming for him. But by the time I came along, it was his fourth year in the league, and he was a little more savvy about it. But I, I was a new guy, so not to be trusted. And um first. The first road trip, it's the Richfield, Ohio Holiday Inn you know, by the old Richfield Coliseum where Harvey Green, your good friend, talks about thinking it was a Bates Motel. And and the fact that they're staying in a Holiday Inn, where literally that when it was snowing hard, the flakes would get through the seams of the windows there. And you see the shutters fluttering and no mini bar. There was a vending machine next to the rusty pool downstairs. It was gross. And um, the night before the opener, Larry Bird and Quinn Buckner were sitting at one end of the bar and I come in, the loser end. No one in the bar. And uh it was I just had a, a little hamburger or something. I sent a round down and then I made a huge mistake when I got up to leave. I sent another round down. Oh, Larry God, hadn't acknowledged no. anything. That was horrible. And uh Larry just told the barkeep no, and he he would not accept the round because when Buckner had kind of nodded at me after the first one. So it was like the worst rejection I'd felt since asking Temple Brunner to slow dance the white shade of pale in 1967 at Groton High School. So I asked. Quinn Buckner, 37 years later. Do you remember that? He says, oh, yeah. He says that that was Larry establishing that, you know, you weren't to be trusted. He wasn't going to be indebted to you. He was smart then. He's smart now. And he didn't want to owe you. And you were the new guy. And that was not OK. So Larry blocked my shot right out of the gate. But gradually that got better. You know, I had the nickname Scoop. But he'd always say, Scoop, do you notice how quiet this locker room gets? You walk in here. You know, and yeah. I understood that. But he noticed everything. You know, there's always guys. It's like in middle school, the agitators and. They were playing in Portland. I got hit in the head by a Kenny Carr up pass down the other end. And Larry saw that. My glasses went flying. And, and he, he, he couldn't wait to track me down at, at the bar after the game. Oh, Scoop, I saw you. You was pissed. You got hit in the head. That was great. And just stuff like that. There was one night, Leslie, when he had that shooting ritual at the Garden, which is a very kind of a cool thing in Boston history. You know, Boston Garden, 1928, old, 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 dark. He'd get there in the mid- late afternoon. He'd come out and shoot around 4:30 for a seven o'clock game, and have one equipment guy, Joe Catado, just rebounding. And I was an early guy, I'd come in and I had those giant porta bubbles and s- s- plug it in. Of course, our seats are right next to the bench down that end. And um, you know, Larry's doing his shooting, and I'm setting up and he comes over and says, Scoop, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on your free throw streak because Calvin Murphy's got the NBA record of 88. You're in the 60s now, so. But this is a first edition story. I know you're not newspaper savvy, but this gets up to Maine and the Cape Cod. And don't miss tonight or it's really going to make me look bad when these people pick up the paper tomorrow. So he says, I got you, Scoop. And, uh, of course, he goes for two in the first half. He makes the first and he turns and winks at me before making the second one. I mean, who does that? That, that stuff does, does not that. happen anymore. <laughs> and it's OK. But it was just the, the presence and the wherewithal. He did this. With, you know, Mike Saunders, the trainer of the Knicks. Um, you know, Larry was banking threes toward the end You know, because he won that three-point thing Three years in a row $10,000 for 10 minutes work He loved that So Mike Saunders saw him banking threes for a Nick game In Madison Square Garden And said, what are you doing? He says, and Larry said, I can do that And he says, well, you wouldn't do it in a game He says, well, you give me five bucks, I will So sure enough, late in the fourth They're killing the Knicks And he banks the three-pointer And he runs by the Knicks bench With his greedy palm extended you know, <laughs> that's, that's how he was
0: how did it happen that you played him in horse?
1: Oh, So this was in the 85 conference semifinals. His hand was messed up. You've seen his fingers. Looks like a baseball catcher. They're bad anyway. And uh, he had been in a barroom fight. This came out later. It wasn't great for anybody. But so he was playing with his hand taped like a web during practice before they were playing the Sixers in the playoffs. And after practice, you know, a lot of national media there. And I said, we're at that little Greek college in Brookline. I said, you can't play with tape on your hand, can you? He said, "Scoop, I could tape my whole hand up, make more shots than you." And I said, "Well, that's probably true, but that's not really what we're talking about." So, anyways, and he really wanted. It. He said, "No, no, no, that's what we're going to do, Scoop. We're going to take a hundred free throws, five dollars to throw." He had this whole thing set up. He must have done it before. And um, so, I, I figured I did the math quickly. I said, "Well, m- most I lose up five hundred dollars here if I miss them all, and he makes them all." So, this is a good story. I'll I'll sell this. So, he uh, they taped his hand like a fist, like a shot put. So he was not, not, not going to have any fingers. And um, he said, we'll go in rounds of 10. We'll take three warmups. He says, you want to go first? You want me to go first? I said, I said I'll said i go first. He said, oh, you don't <laughs> like the, He said, you don't like the pressure, do you? I said, that's right. So I made six. And then he got up me pushing it off. He made six. And then we both made like six or seven in the second round. And then in the third round, when I was rebounding, he said, I got this figured out. And he did. They were all going in. I wasn't even moving, just through the net. He made 86 out of 100 with his oh, tape pulled up. up. And I, I I, was in the 60s somewhere. It was $160 anyway. At midway point, I asked him if we could stop now. I owed him like 45 after 50. He said, well, you know, he gave me a buyout option. It wasn't attractive. <laughs> so it's like $160. So the next day I went to, it was Bay Bank then. I got 820s. I showed up when he's doing the shooting early in the afternoon, late afternoon. And I'm setting up and he came right. As soon as he saw me. he comes right over with a greedy palm extended. I gave him the eight twenties. He folded them up, put it between his converse and his sock into his shoe. Probably had my money there the whole night. And then I see him at the LA airport Marriott, the palatial LA airport Marriott. Where we used to stay two nights later. This is the NBA finals. And he says, um, he says, yeah, diner and I had a big dinner on you the other night with all that money. He said, uh, he said, and then when it was over, she said, OK, Larry, you had your phone with that guy. Why don't you give him the rest of that money back? And he says, can you imagine her saying something like that? I said, no, what a SAP diner is. huh? Geez, who, who would be like that? And then he said, he said yeah, we're going to be out here a week because of this 232 format. We never stay a place a week. And I've been able to save up some of them frequent flyer miles. So she's coming out here. I'm like, Jesus, you cheap ass. It would have been Amtrak if you didn't have your miles to get China to L.A. for the week. I mean, this is ridiculous. So There was
0: no possibility that he would say, forget it, Dan. We Oh, fun. no.
1: And Leslie, when he got hired as coach of the Pacers, fast forward like 15 years, and we were doing a radio show in Boston. We got him on the air and I couldn't believe he was coming back to work that hard. You know, it's so hard working, coaching. And I said, I can't believe you're doing that. And he's on the radio somewhere in Indiana. He goes, scoop. All I know is I got an extra $160 in my pocket right now. He never forgot the number. If you see him, ask him how much. He'll tell you. He knows exactly how much he got.
0: Did he really not know who Bruce Springsteen
1: was? That happened. So the old um, Dallas Mavericks played at Reunion Arena, the beautiful Reunion Arena attached to the Atrium uh, Atrium Hyatt. And we had a rare couple of nights off in Dallas after playing San Antonio. I'm sitting with Peter May and Larry... They'd stop by to get free beers or just to break chops. And he was with, I think, Buckner. And they came in, in their sweats from practice. And and Springsteen was playing that night in the arena, which was attached to the hotel. And um, we're having some late afternoon beers. And all of a sudden, the the gates opened for that show. And hundreds of kids came pouring through the lobby, you know, teenagers, young adults. And and Larry said, what's going on? And we said, well, Springsteen's playing next door tonight. And he said, Rick Springfield? He said, No, no, <laughs> Springsteen. He said, Who's that? And I said, oh, Larry, come on. I said, Larry, he's the you of rock and roll. Think of it that way. He goes, Oh, <laughs> he must be pretty he must be pretty good then. And uh Mikhail was friends with Mills Lofgren. So uh, he got him tickets and Larry went to the show the next night and we saw him and he said, Nah, I didn't stay for that. I said, He sweats a lot. I admire that, but that music's too loud. That's not my kind of music. And, <laughs> Uh, that was the end of Larry and uh, and. How were
0: you friends? I don't actually know the origin of this with Stephen
1: Stills. So Stephen Stills, you already referenced Diane Shaw, and they were dating. Um, Diane Shaw had a lot of stories like that. She was a columnist like yourself, and you know she was real pretty, and and so and people would notice that and and reach out to her. She's probably told you this one, but one t- one time she was in the office and. She had had lunch with Reggie Jackson and written a wonderful story about what it's like to get interrupted and how people should be more respectful of stars times and don't interrupt them because it's really not you know, they're trying to eat. And so she wrote the whole column about that. And um, and Carrie Grant called her in the office of the LA Herald Examiner and said, Diane, it was a wonderful idea for a story. People don't realize, you know, in this whole thing. And she hung up and called her mother that Cary Grant had called to congratulate her on a story. So I would tease Diane when i you know, Celtics Lakers would be out there, I'd say have you had any more of those Cary Grant kind of calls? And she said, actually, Stephen Stills called me, you know, he liked my picture and he's a sports fan and now we're dating. I said, well now we're <laughs> dating because he's like, he's, yeah. I'm a big fan of his. And, and sure enough, um, they, uh, the NBA all-star game was out there. I know you were there and Marvin Gaye sang the great anthem out there in 1983. And and I started when they were dating, I was dating with them. So I just had to hang around and be a fan, a fanboy, And, um, you know they stopped dating, and he and I remained friends. Uh, he was a big fan, but I remember even he would use me to get tickets at the l a Forum for Celtics Lakers because it was a tough ticket. I remember standing down by the baseline, talking to him before a show, and he looked around and he said, "You know, I've filled this place seven times, but he needed me to get tickets for Celtics
0: <laughs> you've had a life yourself, Dan. Uh, what was uh of course you you came to know Red Auerbach so well, but why was Casey? Jones, perfect for that team.
1: Well, of course, Leslie Visser has the best Red Auerbach story, which she's withholding here, but that would be that, you know, Red came to her wedding with, with uh, Bill Russell, and my wife got a picture of, of Bill Russell that day. It was a great picture, and within a year or two, Leslie was booted from the Celtic <laughs> locker room after a playoff <laughs> game against the Knicks because Red didn't want women in the locker room. That's and right. it's like he... Red, you were in a wedding last year. Come on. So, we were dancing. You know, those, those battles have already been fought and won. Let's go. So anyway, that that happened. But no, it was a privilege. My father smoked cigars in the car with the windows up on the way to the dump. I really like that smell of cigars. I, it just made me feel young and, and cozy and warm. And I like the smell of cigars. I never smoked anything, but and I really enjoyed being around him. He was so sage-like and a Buddha. And the last thing Red's... Used to say when he was in his 90s, people would say, what's the secret? And he'd say, don't fall. And that's such good advice for old people. You know, I mean, I feel it now. Like, and Red would say, don't fall. That's all I'm here to tell you. And just anyway, he just had a million. He was so wise and ahead of his time. And so I did a book on him. Uh. I remember because <laughs> John Feinstein had done uh, the breaks of the game uh, with Bobby Knight and sold a billion books, most best-selling sports book ever. A season and on the Red. You know, Bobby Knight didn't like it, and Red didn't like it because he loved Bobby Knight. And so when when I approached um Red, to, I said, you know, hey, would you cooperate with me? Uh, you know, publisher wants me to write a book on you. And Red said, yeah, I got nothing to hide. He said, just don't do what that <laughs> asshole did to Bobby Knight. <laughs> and then of course, fast forward when John did want to do a book with Red and. I helped broker that, and uh, and Red became, you know, he became friends with, with with John Feinstein, and John wrote that lovely book about the lunches they would have in the card right, game with
0: his son, and his yeah, and
1: all that stuff. So it was really a uh, great. But why great was Casey,
0: or do you think it could have been Red? So KC. here's the
1: thing. That's a really good question, Leslie. So Red kept it in the family. Red came in 1950 and retired from the bench in '66. Hired Bill Russell as his head coach, first Black American coach. Um, And then when Russell was done, uh, Red went to Tommy Heinsohn and then Tom Sanders, Dave Cowens. He kept it in the family until Bill Fitch. And that was 1979, the first time Red went outside the family. And they had a pretty good run. Uh, They won a championship with Fitch. Of course, he had Larry Bird and Parrish McHale. Uh, But it got tired. Bill was a, a taskmaster and a yeller. And... Parish needed that early on, and Maxwell and McHale did, but they didn't need it by 82, 83, and, and you could see, and, and Fitch was a control guy, and he was jealous that Red got all the credit. Fitch kind of orchestrated the Parish mchale trade, and Bill didn't like that Red got all the credit. He, he couldn't help it. He was Red. Red was going to get the credit. Too bad. So anyway, uh, it was growing old, and, and he had to go, and when he left, Red went back to the family. So Casey Jones comes on and Casey had been an assistant under Fitch and not respected by Bill Fitch. You know, he would embarrass him in front of the players and players love Casey Jones and rightfully so Casey died last year and Larry Bird said, it's the nicest man I ever knew. Oh. And there's a reason for that. Casey did not have ego. He knew how to coach great players because he had been a hall of fame player played with Bill Russell in college and the NBA. So Casey was basically roll the ball out there. Perfect guy for that time. And that, that finals you covered in 84, I mean, Casey, he wasn't a tactician. He was not current. He often didn't know things, but he had Dennis Johnson guard and Byron Scott and Gerald Henderson on Magic, which was a terrible idea. And the players just fixed that themselves in the middle of the series. They, they didn't <laughs> even talk to him. They just did it. And Casey was not offended or violated or territorial. He just let it happen. And, and that, that was fine. It was not going to be a thing. Here's the point where Casey was not current. So Johnny Most, a great broadcaster, he was our Chick Hearn and Marty Glickman all rolled into one. So Johnny was a big-time homer, and and you, you had all that all that great stuff. And Johnny was not current either. And I remember Jamal Wilkes was was traded from the Lakers to somewhere, and Johnny wasn't aware, and Casey wasn't aware. So it was pregame Laker, Johnny doing his pregame show, and he said, how are you going to stop Jamal tonight? And Casey started talking about how they, they were going to yeah. stop Jamal because – you had two guys talking about a guy who wasn't there anymore, who <laughs> was the head coach and a broadcaster, and they talked about the strategy of shutting down Jamal, who was playing for the Clippers at the time. We'll go to the Parker House and sing a few songs. <laughs> oh, Crooner, great crooner, great crooner.
0: The uh, the name of your book comes from something Bill Walton said. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would he say that about that time in his career when he was coming off the bench?
1: Well, Bill Walton, again, you know him, and you know he and Kareem are the greatest two college players of all time, in my estimation. And the Christian La okay. Well, uh, just Christian Leighton never made twenty one out of twenty two shots in the final. I mean, just you know, didn't Christian win Christian
0: did not miss a shot in the Duke overtime over Kentucky. He went to four straight final fours.
1: He had I'm not saying game. better
0: than one or the other. I'm saying you just mm. can't omit Christian Laner.
1: okay. he went eighty eight in a row. I have to look that up. i mean I, I, I believe everything you're saying. But anyway, so uh, the Walton Laner, I will get to that later. But so Walton <laughs> has this career. Obviously, NBA wins a championship in his second season. He's MVP. His body breaks down. The the college was much better for him, twice a week than five a week, and um, he just had bad feet. And then he has to ends up in Clipper jail for a bunch of years, and where he's not playing at all most of the time. There's lawsuits, doctors, horrible. And he got out of Clipper jail, and he it was almost like a Faustian bargain. He got one year of his life back. Where he got to play 80 games. It just was random that he was healthy enough to play because that was it. it. It went away. He only played 10 more games the rest of his life. But the 85-86 season, he got to the Celtics. He wanted to play with Larry Bird, who he worshipped. He worshipped Red Auerbach. He worshipped the Parquet, Bill Russell, the Banners, all that. You know, he was a La Mesa kid, all Californian, all the time. But he had a, an uncommon appreciation for those Celtics of the 60s that we all grew up with. And um, and it, it was, and he will tell you, it, the Celtics saved my life. That's how he felt. And he cannot, whether you read his, well, I know you have, but the quotes he says in this book, it's just like a guy talking about, it's unbelievable. I mean, he, and he's missed a hyperbole anyway. He'll say, this is the greatest hamburger anyone's ever eaten. You know, it's, everything's like that. But I mean, he told me, he said, Dan, empty the source when you write this book, because you can say anything you want. You cannot overstate how great this was. It was the greatest year of my life. And I wish it lasted forever, which, of course, is the title of our book.
0: Oh, God, that and didn't Bird loved him. Larry. Oh, my God. So,
1: I mean, great story. You know, middle of the season, they're in Indianapolis and Bill just wants to go to Mecca. He wants to go to French Lick where Larry grew up, because for him, that's that's what it's all about. And he asked Casey for a hall pass if they could take a road trip. So they do after the game against the Pacers. It's like we'll see in Chicago, whatever. It's two days away. We're going to go to French Lick. So Quinn Buckter who was then playing for the Pacers, you know, Indiana great and Larry Bird and a state cop who was a friend of Larry's and Buck and, and Walton. They drive overnight from Indianapolis to French Lick, the southern part of the state, rural. And um, they stay at the, the house Larry had down there, his new nice house. And then the next morning they go to Georgia Bird's house, Ma Bird, who raises six kids pretty much by herself after losing the dad. And um, you know, she's not in poverty anymore, but it's still the house and. There's a rusty old rim outside where Larry practiced on the driveway and Bill asked her for a canning jar. And he goes out and he he scoops up dirt from Larry Bird's driveway where the game was learned by the great Larry Bird. And he carried the dirt with him in his gym bag the rest of the season. And any time he was feeling down, he would sprinkle the magic dust on his body before a game to get inspiration from that. At the end of the season, he goes back to La Mesa. And he sprinkled the dirt in the Walton driveway where his mother still lives. And he says, that is now sacred ground. That's the the degree to which he loved Larry Bird.
0: See, so you should be honored that Bird put those $160 in his sock. It's
1: unbelievable. And then the last, when they win the championship, again, Bill gets this this championship on the way out the door, plays 80 games, sixth man of the year. He would commit against the Lakers. Pat Riley said he was possessed against us. He He would block like eight shots in like 13 minutes. It was ridiculous how effective he was. And just having this weapon to spell Robert Parrish, a Hall of Fame guy coming off the bench and loving it. So the last night when they win the championship on a Sunday afternoon against Houston, it's over now. They go 50 and one at home. Greatest team ever. Bill can't end the day. It's just a party. Larry's had it. You know, it's his third championship. And he goes to bed 10, 11 o'clock. And then his doorbell rings, you know, before midnight. And Dinah says, Larry, it's Bill Walton. He's, he's here again. <laughs> and he's like, "Tell him I'm asleep. See you later." Bill Walton won't have it. He comes into the kitchen, and Dinah says, "Well, you can stay here, but we're going to bed." And Larry's already out. And and when they get up in the morning, Bill Walton is still in their kitchen, playing Grateful Dead songs, drinking <laughs> wild turkey, and still regaling. He did not want the night to end. He could not let it end. And that has that story has been validated by three people, so it did happen.
0: This is the reason why the book is to be cherished. But also that that time is to be cherished. I mean, I know you started one column, maybe it was last year, where you said uh, something like, uh, "Not to sound like an old gas bag," <laughs> but
1: <laughs> which we do. I do.
0: <laughs> but you were talking that how how different. What would Red make of the game today?
1: Ooh, I don't, you know, like he would. Red would like Marcus Smart. You know, he would, the certain kinds of players he would like. I, I still I hear that. I see it, but. Red wouldn't like the the three-point, you know, the reliance on the three-point. The, the the way the isolation. They call so much. It slows yeah. things down, the replay. Um, and 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 he would not like guys, you know, hugging each other after the games and, and aligning where they're going to play next year, having All-Star and Subway Sandwich commercials be more important than winning. I mean, it just the priorities are different. This is the culture that's been created by the AAU. And so it's sort of nobody's fault. It's just the way it's evolved not evolved in, a, in an attractive way. And, and yeah, the, the, the players, you know, kind of galvanizing to take care of each other and play with one another and form their own teams. You know, R- Larry hated Bill Lambier to the extent that, that Larry at the All-Star game, well, when the All-Star starters were announced, his first question, he would run to the media and say, you guys need to tell me when they announce the reserves because I want enough Lambiers on my team again this year because I hate All-Star weekend when I have to get on a bus to practice and Bill my in the front row saying, good morning, Larry. And I got to go say, screw you, Bill.
0: <laughs> okay. Go back one more time before we wrap up. Was it in 84? Was it personal for bird against magic?
1: Oh, that's so, that's such a great question. Cause it's so true. I mean, you, you know, and the answer is yes. I mean, because Larry bird, this goes back to when they're, when they're, College guys and just becoming famous, and they're on a I don't know, international team. But it was a Joby Hall coached Lexington driven uh, all star summer team, and and Bird and Magic were subs playing behind Kyle Macy and Rick Roby and Kentucky guys because Joby Hall had no use. And Larry wanted to go to Kentucky because when you grew up in rural Southern Indiana, Kentucky's they're a big deal. They're oh, blue yeah. chip. I mean, they're a big deal everywhere, but. It was every bit as big or bigger than IU. You know, he goes with his dad to to Lexington, and Joby Hall told him he wouldn't get a shot off in the SEC. You know, he's too slow. Then they recruit Rick Friggin Roby, you know, and they win the national championship. And Larry ends up, you know, in the garbage truck and getting big time at Indiana, and then ended up in Indiana State. Everybody dumps on them, and and never forgot that he was always taking out his revenge on all those guys. But so the the Kentucky thing was real. So he, Magic, had a relationship as bench guys playing behind Joe B. Hall and feeling slighted by that as young collegians. And then, of course, it escalates to the the final game, as you know, uh, the most watched game in the history of basketball, or at least college basketball, and will never be replicated. 33-0 Indiana State and Michigan State. And, you know, Magic had two NBA players. He had Jay Vinson and, and Gregory Kelser in that team. It wasn't a fair fight. Anyway, Michigan State prevails. Larry was crushed by that, uh, had a hard time getting over it. And then at the at the start, the first year they're in the NBA together, Larry's rookie of the year, but Magic wins the championship. And Larry gets his championship, but it's not against them. And then Magic gets two more appearances in the finals. So in 83-84, the first time they've, they've there's always been one of them in the finals, but it's the first time against each other. And it's the beginning of the Alley Frazier, the three times they face. And it was the only one Larry won in my view, the most special to him. And Buckner, any of those guys will tell you because he finally beat Magic.
0: God, you know, it, it's so Shakespearean, that whole, yeah. th- those years leading one to the other. Dan, you are so much fun. I could talk to you every day and I almost do. Kind of do, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much, Dan.
1: Well, it's great to be part of this podcast. I hope we make I hope we make podcast history with this. Thank you very much, Leslie.
0: <laughs> Love you, Dan. Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. And that was my conversation with Dan Shaughnessy. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. And special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. SiriusXM XM Podcasts.